Welcome to the Common Good Project's lecture series on regulations and the common good. My name is Chris Conway, and I am co-convener of the project. In light of the length of lecture one, we thought we would put the questions and answers in a separate audio recording. In lecture one, my fellow co-convener, Ryan Mead, offered introductory thoughts on regulations as law and their need to be drafted and enforced for the common good. He discussed Thomas Aquinas' definition of law in the context of regulations. He provided a, a description of regulations as ordinances of the state that are drafted and promulgated typically by the executive function. He also discussed the connection between law and the social nature of humans and proposed that law, including regulations, is necessarily an expression of some type of value system, even if the drafters claim it is not. He concluded by arguing that in as much as law expresses values and attempts a morality, it is appropriate for law to be assessed against normative morality. He proposed that a common good framework of viewing law sees laws and regulations as not only accomplishing an immediate goal, but should always look to broader horizons of fostering virtue and friendship. With that overview, let's get back to the questions. First question, uh, I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier in the paper, uh, that these lectures are a theory of law in the context of regulations. Earlier in the Common Good Project, we discussed several theories of constitutionalism. Where do you situate your ideas that you've described today in theories of constitutionalism? Well, thank you, Chris. That's, that's a great question. Uh, as you noted, I said that I was attempting a theory of law. So I'm, I'm not necessarily attempting a theory of constitutional law. I, I usually think of constitutional law as set within a specific state, but you use the term constitutionalism, which I believe is a good one to use. It's the right term to use in the sense that all states must have some framing order and constitutionalism broadly involves theories of how states might work. Uh, in many instances, constitutionalism is concerned about questions of the rule of law and the limits of a state and lawmaking process, which I'm certainly concerned about in these, in these theories. I'm not setting the theories in the context of a specific state. Uh, in, in, perhaps in a moment, I will mention though that the theories perhaps work better in some states than others. Uh, but I'm really trying to say that regulations as actions of the state do need to sit in some sort of moral framework. And that seems to me to also say that it does need, they do need to sit inside of a constitutional order. So since these lectures are attempting grounds for regulating and what, if anything, restrains the state, or particularly the executive, in making regulations or law, um, I... I would agree. These lectures do sit in the arena of constitutionalism, and I would put the theory that I'm advancing in the family of classical legal theory. Uh, if, if I could say a few more words about constitutionalism, there, there are, of course, many different views on what makes up the order of the state and how to deal with the constitutional order a state has. Um, in later lectures, I'll, I'll use regulatory examples from specific countries but I'm, I'm mostly thinking of a hypothetical state in these lectures, along the lines that Von Fuller uses a hypothetical state in describing 
his criteria for the internal morality of law. And in his famous essays, he, he has his hapless lawmaker named Rex in the hypothetical state. Uh, another point about constitutionalism, is, as long as we're talking about it, is that there's, there's quite suddenly a significant amount of literature exploring constitutionalism. Uh, and there are different camps within constitutionalism. I, I would say that the theories that I'm setting out and working within fall uh, more or less within uh, common law constitutionalism and common good constitutionalism. Uh, they, they aren't exactly the same. There's some overlap, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, within the circle of developing common good constitutionalism. That's that's where I'd say these, these thoughts are. Um, and uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, these thoughts, they, they work better in some states and some, within some constitutional orders than, than others. I, I think the, the uh, wreath lectures from 2019 by Jonathan Sumption, uh, Lord Sumption provides a, a very accessible discussion of questions about the expanding role of law, particularly regulations. And in those lectures, he puts a spectrum of constitutional orders. And he has a spectrum of legal constitutions to political constitutions and uh, acknowledges that there can be mixes of the two. He's, he's not alone in making these di distinctions in this spectrum. Uh, I tend to think that a common good framework for law works a bit better in political constitutions and political constitutional orders than in legal constitutional orders. Uh, not to say that they, they can't, it can't work, uh, but it's, uh, it, it, there's a bit more flexibility. And um, just for uh, purposes for those who have not listened to the lectures, uh, he sets out the notion of a legal constitution as a, a constitutional order that's highly procedural, highly legalistic, bound up in a written code. And he uses the United States as, as an example of a legalistic constitution where there's a written code, written procedure, uh, difficulty in amendments, and we certainly see there are great debates in the US over whether the federal government is restrained solely by the words of that written constitution, of that legalistic constitutional process, and great debates on how to interpret the meaning of the words. Uh, they can be interpreted as the words are commonly understood today under some theories, uh, or there are others who would uh, say that the words need to be uh, interpreted as they were originally understood when, when they were written. So this is uh, sometimes referred to as originalism, and there's various forms of originalism. Uh, the, a common version is that the constitutional words uh, in the code in the written constitution are, fro are, are, are in a frozen point in time uh, based on the meaning that was given to those words at the time the words were adopted. Um, yeah, that it, to me is, uh, it makes common good framework of law very difficult 
to work within if if that is what you're strictly uh, sitting with is is the uh, original meaning of the words uh, that might work if the original meaning of the words were uh, origin originated last month or last year but if they originated 220 years ago 230 years ago and there are words and that have unrelatable meaning right now it's uh, it's very hard to work within a common good framework unless a legalistic constitutional order recognizes that there is something more than the code, that there's some type of small c constitution at work. It's, it's harder to maneuver a common good framework and harder to deal with regulations in a hardwired written constitutional order, particularly if the culture is one in which jurists and the public must always look to the printed word to ground any type of state action including legislation, or they must also look to a dictionary from 1787 to figure out what the legal constitution means. So again, it's not impossible uh, to work within those written constitution, legalistic constitutional orders, uh, but I think in order for a common good framework to work in those orders, there, there needs to be a recognition of that small c constitution at play and that there's there's more than just a, a, a terms that are obscure today may not have been obscure in the 1780s but uh but are obscure today it's it, in fact i would say it's it, it even borders on the question of justice as to whether law can be enforced if it doesn't have meaning today so if, uh, if, if, if this reserves the enforcement of law and the understanding of law to just a small group of etymologists, uh, it's, it's hard for me to see how that is a, uh, that, that works out to be a fair and just constitutional order. So uh, in any case, I probably went far afield from your question, Chris, but uh, I think, I think uh, ultimately regulations are part of constitutionalism. I better end, end my answer there because I, I don't want to confuse listeners anymore than I have with the camps of constitutionalism. Uh, we have some excellent conversations in the conversation series that I would refer listeners back to. I'd also like to discuss the use of the term neutrality in the concept of neutrality as we apply it to the law. There are, there are a couple of different uses of the word neutrality at play here. One use, uh, as you describe it, is the idea that states and polities are not forwarding a moral or ethical project uh, with their laws and regulations. But another use of the term neutrality when it relates to the law is the idea that the law treats us all equally. Uh, the concept that justice is blind, the idea that I would be treated under the law as the same as the most powerful person in the world if we committed the, uh, the same transgressions. So do you think that there is a conflation of these two uses of the term neutrality when it comes to discussions about the law? Yes, most definitely. And I didn't use neutrality too much in the lecture other than very briefly to say that there is no such thing as value neutral law. And there's also, in my view, no such thing as value-neutral enforcement of the law. The two uses of neutrality that you describe, I, I do believe, cause some confusion. 
Uh, and it may be why there is a bit of reluctance to simply jump in the pool and to use the term morality in regard to law. So parsing this a bit, let's take your second use of the term uh, neutral or neutrality. Uh, you described neutrality in the way that we might talk about how uh, you and I share the same human nature. I'm a human, you're a human, and we have a shared human nature that we're owed the same degree of dignity as human persons. And frankly, that dignity doesn't go away. It should never be ill-treated, uh, even when we do bad acts. We, we don't lose our dignity merely by having our bad acts judged or suffering the penalties associated with not conforming with law. But the methods of judging or excessive penalties associated with a bad act or laws, uh, affirmatively encouraging mistreatment of classes of individuals, for example, that, that could violate dignity. There's, there's many ways the law could violate dignity. Um, but it, it does need to treat at a certain level all of us the same. And so it's, it's as human beings, as human persons. Uh, law being neutral is not about specific laws in the second version that you described. It's about a certain basic equality that each human holds and the need for each human to seek certain human goods to flourish. Um, so although our, our human dignity and nature needs to be treated equally, at the same time, law is not a neutral regulator of a society. And this goes to the first version of neutrality or neutral that you used. Law has to take sides. The, the state has to make decisions and judges need to make decisions. When a law or regulation says do something or don't do something, there are going to be people who will materially benefit from that law and there will be people who might have extra burdens because of a law. It's not usually the goal of a law to balance the burdens equally. The goal of the law is to right relations and to make sure that relations are, are balanced appropriately. That may result in extra burdens on people. And so, so this notion that law is neutral or, or the neutrality of law, it, it, it can give off an idea that law is purposeless, but law is not purposeless. It is usually the result of assessing a situation that needs writing or a risk that needs managing and weighing how best to accord relations between parties and courting those relations in a way that benefits the common good and, and secures human good. So if we think about when a law is adopted, whether a statute or regulation it's not neutral. I'd say it's never neutral. And as I mentioned, enforcing the law is not neutral. Fairness does not always mean neutrality. Uh, in, in a classic litigation between two parties, there may be presumptions in favor of parties based on criteria that the parties fall into. Enforcing laws or regulations need to take into consideration the circumstances of the parties and the common good. This, this is not something which is foreign to our legal system, and by that I'll, I'd say the Anglo-American uh, legal system. Uh, and you mentioned justice is blind. Uh, this is a term used quite a bit. 
particularly in the US it's used and it's usually used in the US in conjunction with an image of Lady Justice depicted with a blindfold on, which reinforces something that I'm not sure is an accurate description of law. Uh, most images of Lady Justice around the world don't have her blindfolded. Um, and uh, there's a popular saying that uh, even if Lady Justice is blind, she can hear. So uh, there is, uh, I, I, you know, I, maybe I could sum this up by saying I, I prefer Lady Justice to have one eye covered, but another uncovered to use all the senses available to her to weigh the facts and circumstances. Uh, and, and I also think that it's, it's simply not a reflective of the reality of how law, law works. Uh, talking this way and talking about possibility that law isn't neutral or it can never be neutral, it probably sounds strange to modern ears, but we only need to look at a couple of principles to see this at work in our legal system. It's common, for example, to talk about a preferential option for the powerless or how it is also phrased as a preferential option for the poor. Uh, I'm not sure that is being neutral. It might be being fair, uh, but it's not neutral. Uh, or even in the common law, there, there's a long developed canon of contract interpretation that when no other means are possible to understand the words of a contract, the terms are construed against the drafter of the terms. This canon of interpretation seems to take a realistic approach that the lawyer, if there was a lawyer who drafted the language of a challenging clause in a contract, likely drafted that clause in favor of the lawyer's client. So there, there's a notion that the drafter loses rather than do a random coin toss between the party. Construed against the drafter is a, is a canon that is not neutral. I, I'm not sure how uh, you can, uh, anyone could argue that that's, that's neutral. Uh, so back to your question, the, the term neutral or neutrality, it, it can be a confusing term in law. There, there's equality of human dignity. There's normativity and objectivity. There's fairness, but perhaps neutrality doesn't fit the law and is is a way for people to avoid talking about morality and law. Relating back to your discussion of theories of constitutionalism, is what you are presenting here today a theory of law or is it actually a theory of the state? Hmm. Uh, well, that's another great question. I, I suppose it's mostly a theory of law, but there's a theory of the state, of course, embedded in that. And I would go back to what I said uh, in one of the assumptions in the lectures, uh, and I'll explore a little bit more in lecture two. It's this notion of a unity of reality, that all things are connected to all things. So it's very hard to compartmentalize the theories of law, theories of the state. Um, certainly when we look at law as actions of the state or dictates of the state, uh, we are looking at uh, something that the state does. So we can say, in a sense, there is a theory of law, but it's, it, it just runs to the metaphysics I'll discuss next week, is that there, there's an interconnectedness of, of everything. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that it's possible to have a theory of law without having a theory of the state, 
or that it's possible to have a theory of the state without having a theory of law. But I'd also say I'm not sure it's possible to have a theory of either the law, the law or the state without having a theory of who we are as persons. So the theory of law I'm presenting in these lectures, it does contain a theory of the state. It contains a theory of who we are as humans and it contains anthropology. It's, it's, a, it's a theory of reality and uh, connected to the unity of reality. Uh, there's a fairly well-known book that was written by Ronald Dworkin uh, called Justice for Hedgehogs. And in it, Dworkin poses a, 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 the notion of a theory of the unity of value. And he starts the book by talking about how controversial it is to assert the notion of value in law. But the main point in that book for me, there's, there's quite, a, quite a number of points in that book which are, which are worthwhile considering, but the main point for me in his unity of value is that he ties the notion of value to all things so that his, his notion of unity of value is tied up with the theory of law and the theory of the state and the theory of who we are. Uh, I'm probably now getting a bit into next week's lecture uh, on this notion of the unity of reality. So to your point, yes, in its particularities, this is a theory of law, but it's also a theory of the state, but it's also a theory of humans. As a last question, it seems the theory that you are advancing proposes a strong executive. You've touched on questions of abuse in that in this context. How strong of an executive are you proposing? I think this is an important question. I am not proposing a strong or weak executive with respect to policies. At base, I'm trying to set the groundwork that the executive function of the state acting by virtue of its office can act on its own when the needs of the community require the executive to act. The executive has care of the community at some level, and there are points in time when the executive needs to act, and that that, that is morally justifiable. Uh, this is most clearly seen in emergency situations. So uh, a strong or weak executive, uh, I suppose I am proposing that there can be a strong executive and strong executive action under the right circumstances. Um, but I'm fairly neutral in, term, in the lectures in terms of, of, of what those policies should be. And uh, we'll get a little bit more into this in some of the future lectures. Uh, just to put it out there, my personal policy preferences usually are for the executive to act sparingly and, and that it's better to defer to legislatures and, and also considerable deference must be given to convention so that there's a reliance continuity by uh, those who are uh, members of the community and must follow the state's actions. But there are instances when the executive needs to act to prevent injustice, to ensure safety. And those might not necessarily be connected to written words, or there, there may be no convention to, to look to, and the executive doesn't have the time to go to the legislature. 
it would be great if there is time to go to the legislature. In the, in the lecture, I talked about delegated authority and gave an example of the oldest sibling taking care of, of the family. Uh, if, if there was time for the oldest sibling to think about the situation that uh, he or she doesn't know how to confront and uh, call the parent on their mobile phone, that would, that would be ideal uh, to, to talk to the delegator uh, who delegated the authority to the oldest child for the care of the community. But there, there are times when that's simply not possible. And, and that's the part where in the lecture I, I discussed that it seems as though, although there's a, there's a presumption that going through the legislative process produces just and moral laws at the end, there can sometimes be a presumption that that's the only way that law can be uh, promulgated. Uh, yet the executive acts every day in terms of secondary legislation uh, to fill in the gaps, even when primary legislation doesn't discuss the authority of the executive to fill in those gaps with, uh, with, re with regulation. So my, my point here in all of this is that uh, I, I want to establish the groundwork that the executive can act. Uh, it's, to me, it seems evident in emergency situations that the executive can act. Now, from there, what are the limiting principles on the executive? I, I, I will argue that a, a, a moral limiting principle is the common good and natural law and normative morality. Uh, that doesn't pose a, that doesn't present a, a physical limit. Uh, as I mentioned in the, le in the lecture, that uh, ideally an election poses a physical limit on the executive when the executive uh, may go too far, just as elections uh, pose a limiting principle on legislatures when legislatures are passing laws which uh, don't comport with the common good and are uh, in, not in concert with, uh, with the governed. So the limiting principle on the executive when the executive action action occurs outside of legislation is a it, it's right to be worried about a, a limiting principle, but I would say we also need to worry about limiting principles for the content of legislation as well. Uh, this is where the common good comes in, but perhaps more on that in the next lecture. Thank you, Ryan, for those uh, illuminating thoughts. With that, we will end uh, for today and we look forward to resuming with lecture two. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to keep up on our events, please follow the Common Good Project on Twitter, or you can find a full listing of our past and future events by visiting the University of Oxford Faculty of Law's website. Thank you.